Here's a test. How many optimists we got in the room this morning? Wow. If you're an optimist, you should like raise your hand really quick because you're eager to answer the question. How many, how, many, how many pessimists do we have here this morning? Y'all are laughing. That wasn't even funny. Um, it, it's interesting how, you, um, how your personality is determines how you receive bad news. Have you ever noticed that? Anybody married to an optimist that even bad news kind of gets turned around into like the most positive spin possible on bad news? You know, I just lost my job, but I've got the opportunity to get a better one. You know, they just have the opportunity to take really bad news and turn it around. I don't know that that's the majority uh, personality type that God has given out. I think a lot of us tend to kind of sulk a little bit and soak in the woe is me kind of stuff. And Jesus kind of addresses that. One of the things that's uh, really amazing and endearing about Jesus's teaching ministry is he always tells the truth. He always tells it straight as it is, even when it's truth that you don't want to hear. Uh, Even within the life of our congregation this week, there have been people who have gone to the doctor and they have not gotten news that they have wanted to get. Wouldn't it be awesome if your doctor told you you don't need to lose weight and watch what you eat? That would be awesome. It may not be helpful. It may not extend your life, but it would be, I want to give you a hug, you know, doc, thanks. But instead, he tells you... um, what are you doing with your life? Do something. Eat better. Uh, exercise a little. And so sometimes a doctor to help us has to tell us things that we don't want to hear. And in the same way, it's with Jesus. Jesus tells us some pretty straightforward truth. And he started that last week. We started uh, kind of jumping into a new part of our series in Matthew 13. And if you happen to look at your, at your Bible, when you open up to Matthew 13, you will notice that it's all red letters. Everything in Matthew 13 is, is Jesus talking. And he is telling a whole sermon full of parables. We had the opportunity to look at the first one, and we spent some time just on the first one last, night, uh, last week, the parable of the four soils, where Jesus said, listen, man, the sower's out there, and he's faithfully sowing. He's spreading the seed all over the place. But the truth is, not everybody who hears the word, not everyone who receives the seed, is going to respond really well to it. Some people are just not going to be real happy about it. And you have to wonder if the disciples kind of scratched their head and went, this is good news? We have left everything to follow you. And you've told us that, uh, not that Jesus was giving an equation, but basically 75% of people are not going to respond. That's the pessimist way of looking at it. The optimist way of looking at it is the ones who do respond might bear a 100-fold return on your investment. So a little bit of your, your personality kind of plays into that. And so Jesus is going to continue this morning telling parables. We're going to look at three specifically. And uh, Jesus really likes his agricultural metaphors because he tells two more agricultural parables. And then he throws one in from home economics just to be safe. And so uh, today he is, uh, we have to remember, continuing exactly where we left off last week. And so today Jesus will talk about wheat and weeds He will talk about mustard seeds, and he will talk about yeast or leaven that you use for um, baking. We'll be in uh, Matthew 13, which if you don't have your own copy of God's Word, it's page 727 in your pew Bible. We will begin uh, with verses 24 through 30. 
You'll see the words up on the screen as well. So Jesus presented another parable to them. And he said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then left. Now when the plants finally sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. So the landowner's slaves, his workers, came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and gather them up, the slaves asked? No, he said. When you gather up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them. Store the wheat in my barn. Jesus begins by talking about the kingdom of heaven and comparing it to a field sown with good seed. It sounds almost ideal. And automatically, because this is another kind of agricultural parable, right on the heels of the parable of the four soils, the disciples are thinking, okay, here's the good, the good seed, here's the good soil, and even that one is messed up. Because finally, we've got three soils that are not going to respond. we finally got the good one, and then what happens to the good one? The enemy comes in, and he messes it all up. He fouls it up by casting all these weeds among them. It says that um, after the workers had done their good work, sowing the seed, caring for the field, they slept. And the sleeping is not culpable. It's not like, oh, you bad and lazy workers. No, it's not culpable. It's natural. How many of you work 24 hours a day? We all need sleep. And it's not like there needs to be vigilance because once the seed is planted, you've kind of done the hard work. Now you just got to wait for it to come. And so there's no culpability. The focus is on there is a malicious and stealthy enemy who sneaks in. And he does some things. He can't destroy the good seed, but he can try to ruin the crop. And so he sows his own bad seed. And the weeds are not due to poor work, but to an enemy. And so as they start to kind of sprout up through the ground, the wheat and the weeds kind of of look the same. But it says that as they come to maturation, finally it becomes apparent that there are wheat... And weeds. And the workers go, where did all these weeds come from? Anybody uh, have that problem with their, their manicured lawn? You take good care of it, and you go, what in the world? I planted grass seed, and now I have this stuff. What's going on? Certainly when you are engaged in any kind of planting, weeds are common. You can't be avoided. But the vast amount made it very clear that sabotage was at play. Here's a uh, field that has been thoroughly planted and had been sabotaged with weeds. As a matter of fact, this was such a common thing that the Romans had a law against this. I mean, like, if I could prove that you did this, then you're going to, you're going to jail. And so the workers say, didn't, didn't you buy the good stuff? Didn't you buy, like, 100% seed? Yeah. An enemy did this. And then there's a natural question that kind of arises on the part of the workers. Shall we tear them out? And that's what I do when there's weeds that show up in my yard. To no avail, they just come back. But we ask the question, hey, do you want us to remove them? And the, wor- the, the master very wisely says, no. 
he knew that the root system of the weeds was more significant than the root system of the wheat. And in our desire to purge, in our ambition to remove, it would, resert, it would result in harm to the fruitful. So the radical person who doesn't want any weeds among the wheat oftentimes ends up with no wheat either if he tries too hastily to tear it up. And so he says, make no mistake, uh, listen, it's not going to ruin the harvest, but at the harvest time when it comes, we'll get the weeds out and we'll burn them up and we'll gather the wheat. He says, it's not fun, but the wheat and the weeds will end up in two different places. Now you have to think about this for a second. You've got to imagine that after the parable of the four soils and now the parable of the um, wheat and the weeds, that the disciples are just a little bit discouraged. This has really got to rock their world. We left everything. We left our family business to follow you. And you're telling, most people aren't going to like what we have to say. And even the good works that we do are going to be apparently ruined by a malicious enemy. Even the good works that we do are practically ruined. Jesus, how are we going to survive with so much rejection? I mean, you've had a great track record with the religious leaders. They have all categorically rejected you as the Messiah. And Jesus, you know, even the multitudes who follow you, they don't follow you because they believe in you. They follow you because they want free bread. They want you to turn water into wine. They want to enjoy the miracles. They don't believe in you. They, just, they want welfare is what they want. And they go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11 and a half, 12. That's all you got, Jesus? We've left everything for just this? Everybody hates us. They don't even, they're not approving of our message. There's very few that have really, truly followed you because of who you are. So the disciples must have been overcome by the negativity of his parables, but yet Jesus is trying to say, Oh, disciples, let me just change your perspective just a little bit so that you don't despise the small things. Jesus is about to demonstrate that with a handful, and that handful even weak and uncertain, that he can turn the world upside down through his power. You don't need numbers. You don't need um, incredible things. You need faithfulness. And so you can see the disciples after Jesus tells it. They're like... And Jesus like gets two quickies in before he can, he, two quick parables in before he even goes on to continue. And then he talks about the mustard seed and the weeds in the, uh, the leaven. And I think the disciples probably suffer from the same kind of distraction that we do. We're like, you know what? Like if we could just get like a Christian in the White House, somebody that really loves your word, is committed to missions. If we could just get a Christian in the White House, everything would be better. No, it wouldn't, because the American people would still be the American people. It wouldn't change our hearts. It would just change our politics. You know, if we could just get, oh, man, if we could just get Tom Brady to become a Christian, he's going to have such a platform tonight, and Jesus deflates that opinion really quickly. (laughs) But We want celebrities to be saved because then they're so high and lifted up. We don't realize that Jesus works through the common everydayness of life. Celebrities make big splashes both negatively and positively. 
And if that celebrity is the um, rocky soul that gets choked out, then you end up with a worse example than when you started. Somebody who professes to follow Jesus and then falls away as quickly as he decided to follow. So Jesus tells in these two parables what I call big little stories. The story of the mustard seed and the story of the leaven. And the littleness of the beginning is contrasted with the largeness of the end. What starts out very minutely, both end up massively. Listen to what he says in verse 31. So he presented another parable to them, and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than all the other vegetables and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. That's like a two-sentence parable. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through all of it. So Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he would not speak anything to them without a parable so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now the mustard seed, really little. It's tiny. As a matter of fact, um, it's been said that it would take about 750 mustard seeds to equal one gram. That's little. That is apparently insignificant, but it ends up being the largest of all garden plants. It's important to list kind of one interpretive thing here. There are people who say, well, Jesus said it's the smallest of all seeds, and that's not true. So therefore, the Bible is in error. Well, what kind of seeds do you think Jesus was referring to? Seeds that they were familiar with. Jesus had not been to China. And he said, well, listen, I want you to understand the mustard seed is the smallest seed found in Palestine. But in Zhenghao, they have a palm tree that hasn't even... No, he's not speaking technically and scientifically. He's not a scientist who studies trees and says, it is empirically proven that this is the smallest seed. He's talking proverbially from their experience. And so, um, if, again, if you want to be a, a pessimist and go, well, you know, Jesus lied. It's not the smallest tree. It's not the smallest seed. Um, that's not the point. He's talking from their experience. What kind of frame of reference would they have for talking about a seed for a tree in China? None. So he's, he's talking kind of colloquially, saying, guys, listen, what do you plant in your garden? Well, pay attention to this. What's the smallest seed that you're aware of? It's the mustard seed. While it's small, did you notice what it does? It grows into the biggest thing that you plant in your garden. Now, the mustard, the mustard tree is not a gigantic tree, 12 to 15 feet tall, but it's a garden variety tree. That's huge. It's a lot bigger than the tomatoes that you grow or the stalks of wheat that you grow. It's the biggest thing that you would kind of domestically plant in your garden. <clears throat> and he says something here that I think is really important. And he, he, he's talking about what I call mustard seed Christianity. It starts small, but it can have a world-blessing impact. Do you notice what it said about this tree? He, he's, he's talking about uh, it being small, but having a world-blessing impact. He talks about birds that come and nest in the tree. Now, you may just think he's talking about nature and observation, but there's actually a lot of really good biblical background for what he's talking about. Let me give you two references that you can look up. Daniel chapter 4 and Ezekiel chapter 31. You might want to just write that down because Jesus talks about trees and the trees are not trees at all. They're metaphors. Nebuchadnezzar um, followed God, didn't follow God, followed God, and God blessed him. And he said that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was like a tree 
and its branches branched out to provide shelter for the nations that he conquered. If you were assimilated into the Babylonian culture, there was a blessing that kind of came. You were educated, you were protected, you were safe and secure, you had access to medicine and to education. Huh, that kind of sounds a lot like what happens when missionaries take the gospel with them. When we go to places, there is definitely uh, spiritual and moral transformation that happens. But you know what else happens? Um, Laws get changed. Women and children are no, no longer viewed as property. Economics change. Civility changes. Because when Christians live out distinctly what the Christian life is supposed to be like, they bring a blessing with them. Friend, that means that for you, the expression of your Christianity, how it was lived out, should mean that you're a blessing to your neighborhood. That you are a blessing to your workplace. That your family is blessed because you are in it. It's amazing. There's a, <clears throat> uh, Paul talks about what do you do if you're a believing spouse and you have an unbelieving spouse? Is it, is it okay to leave? You just, do you just go? And he says, no, because the spouse is sanctified by being married to a believing person. He's not saying that they're saved, but he says that there's an influence that happens just by being married to a person who is a believer. There is a blessing impact that happens from that. And that's exactly what he's talking about here when he talks about being a tree. It's a tree that you can nest in. It provides protection, safety, refuge, sanctuary. And Jesus says, hey, listen, right now, disciples, yeah, there's 13 of us counting me, but I'm leaving soon. So 12 of you. Actually soon to be 11 of you, but then we'll make it 12 again. He says, listen, we're on the scale of significance imperceptible. 750 to make a gram. But guess what's going to happen? We're going to grow into a tree that blesses the nations. In spite of opposition, what started, in, uh, what started out small bl- blossomed into something that had an influence to the ends of the earth. You know why you're a believer today? Because that mustard seed of the 12 disciples has grown into whatever, 200 million Christians, 350 million Christians around the world. That's pretty awesome. What started small has continued to work its way out and to grow and branch off in different directions. He talks about the yeast or the leaven that gets worked into the dough. And if the mustard seed kind of talks about the extensive growth of the tree, the, the yeast or the leaven is talking about this whole idea of inner transformation. And so what he's saying here is that yeasty Christianity works behind the scenes too, like the mustard seed but it yields a dynamic and intensive transformation. I'm reading now the Holman Christian Standard Translation. It it actually translates bushels and pecks or whatever your translation has and says it's about 50 pounds of dough. So how much much leaven, how much yeast do you need to leaven that whole 50 pounds of dough? About this much, a handful. And you sit there and go, all right, um, 50 pounds of dough on this hand handful of yeast on this hand. Certainly the yeast has got to lose. I mean, 50 pounds versus, you know, a quarter of a cup. What happens is that yeast has a power in itself, though vastly outnumbered, to infiltrate and transform and do some things invisible but intense and to leaven the entire um, amount of dough that is there. You just need a little bit. You just need a little bit to yield this great transformation. 
it may seem like for us, uh, Christianity, church life is really small and insignificant. We don't make the front page news. You know, I, I don't know how many times Northside Baptist Church has been in the Herald or the Charlotte uh, News and Observer. We have great influence. There are great things that can happen. What the yeast does, it works from the inside out and it transforms every facet of our being. I'm just curious here. Is there anybody here in the room that would say the gospel has made you a different person than you were? I would say that. Maybe just a mustard seed or maybe just a handful of yeast. And it's totally true. No, I'm, I'm still a sinner. Painfully aware of that. But the trajectory and the focus of my life completely different than it would have been apart from Christ. And so this gospel transforms every facet of our being and has this ridiculous yield. Uh, one person kind of tried to work out 50 pounds of dough. What would that yield once it's baked? And th- they said basically enough bread to feed 40 people three times a day for a week. That's a lot of food. It may not look impressive, that little handful of yeast, but trust it anyways to do its work. Jesus and disciples, listen, I know you heard about the soils last week, and now you hear about the wheat and the weeds. Trust the gospel. It's going to work. It is going to do what only it can do. And so this conversation, these parables about the seed and the yeast, made sense to the disciples. They understood that. They, they see it working. And we know it made sense because they didn't ask any questions about this parable. They were pretty good about going, what that mean? They don't do that with the mustard seed and the leaven. They understand the thing that starts small can become a tree that grows to shelter the nations. And the yeast that is just a handful can become the bread of life to feed the entire world. They get it. But in verse 36, something really important happens. Jesus said in, oh goodness, verse 34, Jesus told the crowds all these things. But in verse 36, he pulls back from the crowds and he continues to teach uh, parables to the disciples alone. And they ask him a question. They go, what in the world does this mean? Let's look at verses 36 through 43. Then Jesus dismissed the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field to us. And uh, Jesus doesn't do this in many cases. Like, he gives you like a play-by-play, person-for-person, here's, this is this, this is this, this is this. He correlates everything out. He said, the one who sows, that's the son of man. The field... That's the word, world. The good seed, the good seed in the parable of the soils was the word. The good seed here are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather from His kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Well, Jesus has already talked about mustard seed Christianity. He's talked about yeasty Christianity. Now he talks about Wheat and weed Christianity. And as we think about wheat and weed Christianity, it reminds us of our calling in the, wor- in the world. 
And he lays out exactly who everybody is in the parable. And I think there's one really important thing to do here. See, when we talk about the parable of the soils, I think that's a parable about the church. Because you remember, there was one thing that all of the soils had in common, and that was that they all heard the word. So I think it's, it's talking about un, unfruitful, professing Christians who really don't possess it. There's no fruit in their life. They're, they're not believers. They have heard the word, but there's, the, the birds come and take it away. It's, it, it doesn't ever penetrate. Um, <clears throat> and then I think some people take what we learned from last week's parable and apply it here, and they go, well, I guess that just means that in the church we're going to have wheat and weeds all over the place. What does Jesus say is the, is the, the, um, the field? He says the field is the world. I don't know how commentators can say that this is a parable about church life because the church should be the field of wheat. The world is the field of weeds. And here's kind of the challenge for us, and this is where it gets really tough. Um, I love the story of David and Goliath. It's one of my favorite stories. I've loved it since I was a kid. And you have the story of the Israels, of the Philistines, and the, is- the armies of Israel. They come out. And there's a valley between them, and one, uh, one, makes their camp, one army makes their camp on one side of the valley, and the other army makes their camp on the other side of the valley, and then the champions come out in the middle to do battle. Okay, you've got that picture in your mind? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he talks about the world, he says that the wheat and the weeds grow up right together. So what he's saying is that, that there's, a, there's a battle that's going on. There's a great world war that is going on between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of darkness, Here's the problem. The world is the tent, and both armies exist underneath it. When you go to work tomorrow, there are not going to be people that encourage you in your walk with Christ. It's just not going to happen. You have to find a way to be faithful in the midst of that. Because it's not just like, you know, you got your wheat field and everything's good. Now, I'm not going to ask you, you know, do you have any, any weeds in your life? Because I know that you do. I know that you do. Some of them may be in your own family, your extended family, your co-workers, your neighbors. This is what Jesus is saying. There's this great battle. And just as Jesus is a sower, the devil is a sower too. It's just he's a counterfeit. I love the way that it's been said. Wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil builds a chapel there. And it will be found upon investigation that the latter has the larger congregation. He's going to work hard where he sees God at work because he can't destroy the fruit, but he can try to uh, uproot it by planting weeds around it. And so I think Jesus is anticipating some questions from the disciples. He, they went, ah, ah, and then he told the other two parables. And now he gets done and they come back and they go, please tell us what this is about. And I think in the way that Jesus told the stories, he anticipated their questions. The disciples go, with all of this negativity around, what are we supposed to do? You know what their first response is? Do you want us to tear them up? Do you want us to eradicate them? Do you want us to destroy them? You remember the story of James and John? Jesus is preaching in one of the villages of Samaria. And they won't receive Jesus. They don't like his teachings. And James and John, who are affectionately known as the sons of thunder, say, Jesus, should we call down fire and destroy the entire village, men, women, boys, and girls? How's that for compassion? Jesus says, no. No, no, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Are we supposed to eradicate them? 
No, that's not what the master says. Are we supposed to go to Montana, buy 100 acres, and build a compound? Should we isolate ourselves? No. Our goal is not to eradicate. It's not to isolate. It is to permeate, to be in the world, but not to be of it. So Jesus tells us something that's really difficult, but it should give us hope. The Christian faith works like yeast. It is like a mustard seed. It is small, but it is growing. It may be imperceptible, but it is happening. And until the time when the Son of Man comes back to clear out his harvest, he says, wheat and wheat have to exist together. I'm sorry, but you have to deal with worldliness. You have to deal with evil. You have to deal with people who don't give a rip about what your values are because we will exist side by side until that day where it is either a terrible day of judgment or a fantastic day of celebration. So what do we do until then? I think one of the things that he says here is really quite simple. We need to remember that he is God and we're not. It is Jesus' responsibility to judge, not ours. If you asked a um, hundred um, non-churchgoers what the first word is that comes to their mind when they hear the word Christianity, do you know what it is? Hateful. Hateful. When they hear the word Christianity, they think hateful. Now, that's been anything but my experience with this church. If people walk in that door, I can know that they will be loved on perhaps even more than they want to be loved on. Some of you got space issues, you know. If, if you do, there's a hug coming. You better run. So, um, it, loving. But there have been some from among our number that have been very judgmental in the way that they talk about the way people live. Listen, that doesn't help anybody change. It just makes them think less of you. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, it's not your, it's not your job to judge. That's my job. Leave it to me. Now, we've got a bunch of other things to do. Here's why I think he says it. Jesus knows it's his right to judge. And by, by being patient through the gospel, we don't have the power to do this. But some of those weeds can and do become wheat. As the wheat bears fruit, that's going to happen. Woe to the person that wants to pull up all the weeds right now. When a week from now, that person may hear the gospel and believe. Jesus said, I'll take care of the stumbling blocks. I'll take care of the immoral people. I'll get, I'll get rid of the people that, uh, that, that don't want to love or serve me. And he says, the judgment of hell will be a terrible thing. There will be no joy. There'll be no fellowship. There'll be no friendship. There'll be no pleasure. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in the meantime, what are we to do? I think there's four quick applications for us to kind of synthesize what we've been talking about. The first is this, like the good soil, what does God want from us? He wants us to receive the word and be converted. Conversion, that's what he wants. Like the good soil that we talked about last week that received the word and bore fruit, that fruit is a variety of different things, but it can't be anything less than conversion. That's, that's the first fruit that God bears in the life of a Christian, is he changes you. You become a, a son of the king instead of a son of the enemy. That's the first thing that he says. He says, I want you to uh, bear, to receive the word and be converted. 
So we're to be like the good soil, like the seed and the yeast that we talked about just now. He says, we're to be content with small and invisible things. We don't like that because we want the Tom Brady's converted and we want, every, we want to be on the cover of Newsweek and we want all these things to happen. But that is not how the gospel works. It works behind the scenes, smallly and imperceptibly, but courageously and victoriously. See, we have to trust that God is going to bring about his kingdom exactly how he wants to, whether we like it or not. We may want this politician or that politician, this movie star, this athlete. And God says, you know what, I'm going to continue to choose the foolish things of the world because it's worked out pretty well for me over the last 2,000 years. I've got a church now that numbers in the hundreds of millions instead of just 12 measly disciples who are scared of their own shadow. We're to be content with the small and invisible things. Like the owner of the field, we are to demonstrate a gracious character through our patience. You remember they said, hey, you want us to tear it up? Owner said, no, no, be patient. Be patient. And instead of being judgmental, we should have an attitude of loving mercy and patient compassion upon people. We should be loving rather than hating. We should be witnessing rather than condemning. We should be showing mercy over judgment. And we have an opportunity to be converted, to be content, to show our character. And lastly, but most importantly, like the sower, we're to be dedicated to our commission. How do you know who the good soil is? How do you know uh, who the weed is? They bear fruit. And they take of that seed and they share it elsewhere. They spread the good seed of his word. Friend, listen. You don't get to pick the pot that you're planted in. You didn't get to pick your parents. You didn't get to pick your family. You didn't get to pick any of that. God has sovereignly planted you where he wants you to be. Because it just may be that you're the salt, the light, the wheat, the yeast, the mustard seed that influences a person that I will never influence, that Joe will never influence, that Chris will never influence, that Candy will never influence, because you're the one God has placed in their pathway. And so be committed to these kinds of things. Be content with God and how he works out his plan. Show your character, even in the midst of the greatest opposition. Be uh, committed to the commission. Because we're to grow, we're to be fruitful, we're to multiply. Because we are to be in the world for the good of the world, but never of the world. Would you pray with me, please? God, we thank you this morning that you give to us very clearly what our job, our role, and our responsibility is. God, the seed is yours. We just have a responsibility to be faithful with it. And so this morning, God, we pray that you uh, convict us of what it is that we need to demonstrate more, whether it's being proud of the character that you've produced in our life, whether it's um, standing in front of your people and saying, you know what, indeed, I am. I am a disciple of Christ, and I'm not ashamed for the world to know through church membership or through baptism. Maybe we need to be recommitted to our commission, that we realize that, God, listen, you may be, I may be the only mustard seed in the spheres that I run into, and you, you, you desire for me to have a blessing impact on the people that are around me. God, convict us. Help us to repent. And help us by your power to live for you as only we can do. And God, we pray 
in faith that you will help us to see uh, the multiplication of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.